Hello, everybody. I am Kim Scott, and I am Wesley's co-host of this podcast. Hi, I'm Wesley Faulkner. I am here with Kim, and we also have a guest, and this guest wrote to us, and so we have them on the show, and we are super excited to welcome Cassia. Cassia, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. My name is Kasia Musur. I'm based in Berlin. I'm the founder of Vent, which is a small startup. We are focusing on supporting people who are suffering under toxic leadership. We are developing different tools to um, spread awareness and also to reduce the fear and lack of um, knowledge on how to deal in such situations. I'm also running um, an NGO focusing on human trafficking prevention here in Germany called Light Up Germany. And I'm very happy to be here. I wrote to you specifically because of the topics that you're dealing with. So I'm very excited for our discussion. And I'm really excited to hear more about how you are uh, how how you are helping people build solidarity to deal with toxic leaders. I think we've all uh, had some some unfortunate experiences, and it's it's like one of life's mysteries is why toxic leaders succeed so often? Like, why don't we create consequences for that kind of behavior faster? And I think it starts, yeah. I think it actually starts in middle school, but, but that's maybe a whole other topic. Uh, but before we were jumping on, we were sort of talking about how, how it's going, how it's going there in Berlin, what's happening with the weather there, like a little climate chaos conversation. So what's, how, how are things there? Yeah, it's quite chaotic. We had summer, then we had autumn, and then we had summer again, and then autumn. And in our minds, we're completely confused. My dog is confused. <laughs> really, everyone is confused. So it's, um, yeah, and I would say maybe a bit of a difficult time right now just to cope with the temperature differences, because we have uh, a lot of rain, quite cold, and then the next day, it's just super hot, and it's not the wow. type of climate we're used to here. <laughs> So yeah. it is quite confusing. But what about California? California, we have had, uh, uh, well, with the exception of the folks that just had got hit by a very <laughs> unusual summer storm, we've had a nice summer. Uh, it's been sort of cool. But California, it's it's funny. It has a very different, it feels very alien, California, because, uh, you know, it doesn't rain from March until November. Like when I first moved here, I'm like, is this normal? Is this okay? So California has its own strange, strange climate. Uh, but, but, uh, luckily we have, we have water for the first time in a while this year. And Thank Wesley, goodness. you just moved. So yeah, talk I moved. About what's going on. Yeah. So I live in Roanoke, Virginia, but, um, I still get dispatches from Austin, Texas, where I, I moved from. And I, hot, hot, it's hot just, there. it's so hot. Uh, I've seen pictures of the earth cracking, like the, yeah. the moisture's e evaporated so much that uh, the clumps can't even stay together. Um, there is a, um, I saw a story from a post on social from a friend of mine whose daughter went outside barefoot and they came back and they had, um, they had, uh, had level Listers? two burns oh on their feet gosh. from the how hot the pavement was. Wow. Uh, and wow. it doesn't seem like it is um, going to let up anytime soon. It's going to be hot all the way probably through Halloween. Oh, my uh, gosh. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. I, and, of course, 
being here in Virginia and it's and a warm day is like in the low nineties. Um, and so it's not so bad here, but that's also rare, but it's, um, being in the mountains, we have elevation as well. So it gets cooler as you go up and it's almost, I, I have this perspective of like, you don't have to stay there. Come everyone who I know yeah. in Texas move here, be yeah. my friends here. Let's be together again and, yeah. and uh, have some salvation from the, the heat. I, I know there's there's a there's a stay and fight kind of mentality, but um, we'll, we'll get into the political stuff probably later. But um, the, the, it, without consciousness and mitigation, it's hard to find a state of relief um, from from that oppressive heat. Yeah, I mean, the really tough thing, I think, in Texas is a friend of mine who lives in Austin just picked her son up at the airport at midnight, and it was still 93 degrees, which is like 30 degrees Celsius, I think, at midnight. You know, that's rough. When it doesn't cool down at night, that's hard. Mm -hmm. Well, I recommend reading Ministry of the Future as we're thinking Mm -hmm. about climate chaos. The, the, (laughs) The opening scene of that, have you read it? No, oh. I haven't even heard of it. Oh my gosh, gotta read Ministry of the Future. The opening scene of that book is unforgettable, and every time I read about how hot it is, I think I think of it all the time. So I'm not going to give it away. Just pick it up and read it if you get a chance. I just uh, saw this past week. It was what Greta's. It's like a what is it? The five year, ten year anniversary of Greta Greta's like years, right? ten years, I guess, of her protests uh, about. Uh, not taking action on climate change or something like that. Um, and it's just like, I I hope she moved the little needle. I mean, I think it's part of the conversation for some people, but I think only some people want to listen, unfortunately. Yeah. Cassia, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think only some people want to listen. That's also to do with toxic leadership. Yes. <laughs> it's about who benefits from what and what kind of effort mm-hmm. people want to put into it. And uh, when we talk about bias, that's another thing who is uh, raising the voice and is this voice counting? Is it heard at all or is it mocked? Right. Yeah. 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 Yes. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, Well, Cassia, you wrote in to us after you heard the episode that Wesley and I did on the taxonomy. Uh, So why don't we start? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then we'll jump into the reading about bias and then we can talk about that. And then I want to hear more about uh, your stories and 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 more specifics about what your what your company is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what did you think of the taxonomy? Yeah, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I thought it introduced interesting uh, methods and also the the fact that you distinguish between where power comes into play and where power yeah. doesn't come into play. Because yeah. from my perspective, I felt like there is always power somewhere yeah. there. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, that's, that's a really important point. I think bias, you know, if you're in the power dominant group, then you have some power, uh, uh, and your bias carries more of a sting than mm-hmm. if you're not in the power dominant group. That's really, yeah. And I really appreciated the, the story that was told because it was, um, very, um, it was subtle. It was one of those things that you can't really put a finger on it. You know, many people can argue, well, no, no, that was just the policy they had. So it was nothing yeah. to do with anything. But uh, you just know, especially when you're experiencing it as the target, then uh, you know. And then it's really uh, like when you were saying why it's toxic leadership, why is it so tolerated? It's because people don't raise the voice, people don't speak up, people don't describe these situations. And then the next person that experiences it doesn't know that it's a valid point. 
So um, yeah, I think it's it's great that these stories are being told and uh, for the wider public as well, so that more people um, can recognize what's happening to them. Yeah, and that was the story about about Wesley getting it, the, the not being allowed to check in when he had already prepaid a reservation. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is it's it's hard to attribute that decision of that person to anything other than just blatant racism. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I recommend well, listening to that episode for sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that was a painful. I'm sorry that happened, Wesley. It was a painful oh, yeah. story. Uh, I had erased it to my memory from my memory yeah. just now. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's probably psychologically the most healthy thing you could do, you know, because you, you you don't want to carry that around with you all the time. But um, yes, yeah. actually, Everyone, if I can... uh, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say that because part of my work is I interview people to hear their stories and to um, find ways what could be helping them. And a lot of the time, people don't remember their stories. They know they have a story they would like to share, but mm -hmm. it's, as we talk, it's only coming up again and coming up again. And they're quite surprised that they forgot that it was such an important and big part of their life and they just suppressed it. They yeah. had some little just, uh, you know, memories but not a proper story and then when it comes back it also has a physical effect on them and it's it can yeah. be quite tough but um yeah i think it's quite normal to just repress it yeah well i have the blessing of adhd so i my <laughs> mind just bounces between things and so that's why i can forget things so it i don't i hopefully it's not i'm not dissociating but maybe it's just uh but i i blame it on like i have poor memory and sometimes it works in my benefit yeah yeah yeah, no, I mean, it's funny. When I started writing Just Work, I thought, oh, I'll have to interview other people. I haven't really had many bad experiences. And when I started thinking about it, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I have a story for every point I'm making or 10 stories for every point I'm making. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's so a spectrum. We... Yeah, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and I think that the tendency to repress these i think that's probably also part of why toxic leadership uh we don't hold it accountable because because it is it's like we want to let it go um and yes and it's, it's also uh shameful it's more shameful mm -hmm. right now to be the victim of it or to yeah. experience it than to actually uh behave this way towards other people and it should be the other way around so yes. people wouldn't would, will not be repressing it so much if they didn't have so much shame about it. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think uh, it's an, <laughs> also an abuse of the benefit of doubt. Like when saying, is this really happening to me? It must, I've must have done something or there's something <laughs> yeah. that I missed or I'm not uh, assimilating into the corporate culture correctly. And this person's been there before, or they know more than me. And so it's all that, that benefit of doubt that he's like, no, it couldn't be that this person is abusive or a horrible human being or yeah. something like that. Um, but Kim, you're, you're, you're trying to transition us to the reading and I keep interrupting. So please go ahead and continue. No, actually, you're making a really important point and it does, it's a good transition to the, to the reading because I think that sometimes when we talk about unconscious bias, we're letting other worse behaviors off the hook. Like what's happening is not just unconscious bias, it's actually discrimination. And, and, uh, and so I think that that's important. Um, that's a great transition. Thank you, Wesley. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to jump in and read this. And Cassia, Wesley already knows this, but please be radically candid. Tell me what you agree with, what you disagree with. I was reading this right before and I have some questions about it. So we'll, I may stop myself and ask you all what you think. 
All right. Bias, how leaders can prevent it. How can you teach your team to disrupt bias so that they can treat one another with respect, make more rational and partial decisions, and collaborate in a way that makes the whole greater than the sum of its parts? Much has been written about unconscious bias training, when it is helpful and when it can backfire. I'll say this. There are some trainings that are enormously helpful and others that aren't. The thing that most often goes wrong is that it leaves people clear about the problem, but unclear about how to fix it. This is a recipe for paralysis, or what I think of as bummer liberalism. Luckily, there are plenty of things we can do to solve the problem. I'd love to get your thoughts on that term, bummer liberalism. <laughs> you laugh, but I don't want to. I, lo- I am a good liberal, so I don't want to. Uh, I, I don't want to attack my own. Anyway. The key thing for leaders to do is not to boil the ocean and try to educate their teams about all the biases or bias as an attraction, as an abstraction. Rather, the idea is to teach a team to disrupt the biases relevant to the actual people in the room. Trying to be aware of every bias it might possibly present is too much. Also, there are very few absolutes. What might work for someone or even many people won't work for others. The point is to listen when someone tells you that your use of language bothered them and to be both kind and clear when someone's language bothers you. For example, I hate it when people refer to adult women as girls, but I don't speak for all women. Others don't mind. But if you're working with me, please don't persist in calling me a girl, justifying the choice of words by telling me that other women prefer to be called girl. You're not talking to other women. You're talking to me. Of course, if a person has a deeply ingrained habit of referring to women as girls, I need to be patient and persistent for as long as I can tell they are trying to change that habit of speech when talking to me. When you're not, they're not going to be able to change the habit after I tell them once. And of course, I don't get to tell them what words to use when interacting with other women. Yes, it would be nice if there were absolute rules, but human communication has never followed predictable rule-based patterns. We need to adjust to how we are talking depending on who we are talking to. Creating a culture where people can educate each other about specific biases will disrupt bias before it it disrupts your work and your relationships. All right. So I'd love to get your thoughts. Lay it on me. Cassia, let's start with you. Yes. Well, um, first of all, I think it excludes the leader a bit. It talks about what a leader can do for their team not to uh, use bias. But I, I believe it all starts with the leader. So yes. the leader should look at themselves first because it yeah. will impact how they hire, who they hire, what they tolerate, because they could be massively biased and then introduce someone external to bring in the training and the training yeah. will be perfect, but still they lead by example and the fish rolls yeah. from the head. So yes. people will immediately see that, okay, yeah, that's what we should not tolerate, but it is tolerated. So I, I think... Uh, that it should emphasize the the leader themselves and what responsibility they hold for that culture and what it looks like uh, that they have to uh, be the example. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, a really good point. And and as I go on in the chapter, I talk about this bias disruption, sort of waving a purple flag, and the leader has to make themselves the 
uh, it has to encourage people to wave the flag at them first and to reward that kind of disruption rather than to than to punish for it. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. And then again, when you layer on power and you get discrimination, you need to, <laughs> to sort of design your management systems. Really important point. I think yeah. Cassia is exactly right in terms of the leader sets the example and kind of dictates how people should behave. But um, I want to draw out this point where you said patience and persistence in relation to being called a girl by someone who might be repeatedly um, used to doing that. And it will take some time for them to get acclimated to how others would like to be treated, even though that they have this history. Um, one thing that I wanted to say is, especially on the leader and especially on the individuals, is that reinforcement is important. So if someone yeah. can do a training and then they leave, but you need to make sure that you are all practicing and you have the persistence to keep practicing and keep making sure that this stays top of mind. It's easy when um, a deadline hits or uh, something breaks that some of these go out the window because- yeah what's important is the fire that's going on. And so patience in, is per, in persistent. And I also um, wanted to point out, I can tell you work in tech from, because the summary of what you wrote is it depends. And yeah. that is the ultimate tech answer <laughs> for any question. It was like, Oh, it depends. You can do this and this and this. Yeah. Uh, and I, it also brought it. it go ahead. Uh, but I was going to say one more thing, but um, go, go ahead. ahead before I do that. Here's the, here's the one absolute that that I that I tell my kids anyway. I'm like my kids are both white, and I'm like, there's one absolute that you're never allowed to use the n word under any circumstances. Like that's, uh, but 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 if you know, like my daughter, for example, refer says you guys bugs me, but it's up you know it doesn't bug <laughs> her and her friends, and mm -hmm. she goes to an all girls school and they call each other you guys, and so I'm not going to impose my prep. But if she's talking to me, <clears throat> I, I ask her to say you all. Mm -hmm. Same. I, funny that you brought up your kids, and because I was going to bring up the, the the thing I was going to talk about siblings, mm -hmm. and how two siblings can squabble when a third person comes in. It's like oh, you can't talk to my sibling like that. Yeah. Even yeah. though that they are acting the same way, and that how talking about this in a team or a department or a company level that scales kind of the same way, the closeness matters in the way that you talk to people mm -hmm. and the familiarity that you have with each other. Um, there's a pardon for language, uh, I know we're allowed to use language on this, but um, um. The, there's the example that I heard, I think, from Tanahasi Coates mm -hmm. was that if two women um, are together and one says, bitch, yeah. and they're talking to each other, then they could be friendly. Yeah. But then a third person comes in and say, bitch, like, oh, don't you not, dare. Not, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it depends on um, the, the familiarity in terms of when some of the same words are used and who uses them the same way. And so when you're talking about that, there are no universal rules, that's kind of also part of it is that context really matters and closeness really matters. And when you're talking in, in your other book, um, that you have to care deeply, that's kind yeah. of like scales why it's important to care deeply when you're also being critical because it, it doesn't have the same impact in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. 
And by the way, that's another that's a real another really good example. Like uh, I, my son, I I, re- I react much more strongly if he uses the word bitch than if my daughter does <laughs> because yes. I think she, you know, she can use that word if she wants to, but I think he has less ground to stand on, which maybe isn't fair. But there's other things that he can say that she can't say. Agreed. Like the Although N-word. I can't think. No, no. he cannot say that. <laughs> <laughs> he cannot. Actually, it may not be true. It may be, I need to think about this. Maybe a problem of being a white boy. Maybe, maybe, but, but, you know, I would get upset if she, I I, I get upset if she uses words that like assume that he's, you know, Mm -hmm. something because of, because of his identity. I think. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So, but I don't, I don't want to take up too much of the air. Like, uh, Cassia, did you have more to add? Um, yes, actually, I think, um, wait, what was it? Because <laughs> um, <clears throat> I really liked your point about caring deeply. That was something I uh, resonated with because it really is about, and I think maybe it uh, comes together with the point, another point I was I wanted to make about the patients. Because mm-hmm. um, I'm always thinking like there should be zero tolerance for bias and zero tolerance for certain words being used uh, towards people, especially if they are, um, they already expressed that they are unhappy about it because it comes like if you care deeply, then you, you know, intrinsically, this word is harmful. It, this person doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't feel good when I speak to them this way. And maybe there is a slip up one or two, but there is a, I believe from my perspective, there is a very, very um, small window of opportunity for this after you've been told. And especially if it is harmful words, because <clears throat> people can be used to discriminating since they were very young and then they just carry on and letting them have that time. I think um, considering the harm that it can cause, I think it should be as limited as possible. Um, Yeah, I think, so what about, so so I don't know, uh, it's very common that people refer to a group of people as you guys. And, you know, that bugs me. and I was working with the CEO and he understood why it bugged me and he was working on not doing it. But this had been like a habit of speech since he was young. And I felt like I had all kinds of tolerance for him because he was genuinely trying, uh, but, it, but he kept slipping up. And I think we all have had those experiences. Like another example that where I think that tolerance, you know, persistence is important, but also some level of tolerance. So, for example, in the book, uh, I hired a bias buster, and she told me that I tended to use sloppy sight metaphors. So I would say we're blind to when what I really meant was we're unaware of. And I felt like this was a really important point, and I really cared uh, in, in particular, because one of the other editors that was helping me with the book is blind, and I didn't want to use language that was going to make it harder for him to do his job. So I really cared. I really was aware of it, and I really thought I had fixed the problem. But then when I turned the book into the editor, I, I, I did a quick search. And in a 350-page book, I had used sloppy slight metaphors 99 times after I was aware of it. And, I, and so that was like that gave me some insight into what it is to be the person who's causing harm and who's trying to do better and why I think that there's, there are times, I mean, and it's hard to distinguish intent, you know, like sometimes people just don't care. 
Exactly. And they keep doing it intentionally. Uh, yeah. But as long as they're giving you some <laughs> evidence that they're trying, then I think tolerance is called for. I don't know. What do you think? Maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, I think this is a good distinction because, um, I mean, unconscious bias, I think it's still, I mean, when you think about human beings and you think about their inherent uh, dignity and you feel that people should be equal and you have this bias that they're not, that's why you use girls against women because that's making them smaller and uh, younger and uh, less, I don't know, uh, with less, less agency or less power. That's why you use other words which are, um, making people smaller because you actually <clears throat> have that belief that they are. Yeah. So I would argue if you have that belief, then it's a prejudice. It's not a bias. Usually bias is unconscious. And, and when you stop and think about it, you don't actually believe that thing. If you stop and think about it and you do believe that thing, then I would argue that's a prejudice and you need a different kind of in- I mean, intervention. I think still even prejudice, like if people actually think about what they're doing and saying, whether they're prejudiced, whether it's bias, whatever you call it, people will actually find that they don't think this way. And that's why I think education and awareness is the the best way to solve that issue. Because mm-hmm. deep down, I don't think anyone would really, really believe it once they knew, once they were educated to what that really means to be human, what how we all come together and what are our differences and similarities. I think it's lack of education and it's lack of awareness. I, I, I could see both sides yeah. if I can. Yeah. So, uh, Kim, from your perspective, it sounds like if the person's trying, then that they understand and recognize that what they're doing is harmful, but still they can lapse into habits. And uh, Kasia, you're saying that if they really did understand that they would really, I mean, they should be able to get on the same page relatively quickly because they understand that every time they do it's harm. I think the missing piece, and we talked about caring deeply, but I think the missing piece is is, um, compassion, where I was talking to someone the other day. And they, uh, I, uh, they're just saying, "Hey, I see you're no longer on X slash Twitter or whatever." Mm-hmm. And they, they asked me why. Yeah, and I said, "Well," I, and they said to me, "Like just discovering, like I heard that um, Elon Musk is anti-trans, and uh, is that why?" And I said, "That's part of the reason, but uh, there's it's more complicated than that, but more of that." Um, he is not only anti-trans, but he has a trans daughter. And when asked about, um, asked about, the, you know, his kid changing their last name to disassociate with them, he, he said that you win some, you lose some. Oh my god! In response about his kid, and then um, when when about the the, you know, the stories of rampant racism in the Tesla manufacturing facilities and how nothing was done and how they lost mm-hmm. millions of dollars in, in lawsuits because of the court cases and how the, he decided the word cis is now a, a hateful term and you can get your account suspended or you can be penalized for using it. And I said, I, and I'll just stop there um, because there are so I, many examples. And it's one of those I, things where it's like, it's not, I hear a thing, I hear it bothers you, but do they know how much it bothers you? Do they understand how 
harmful it is? Do they understand the magnitude or the, the depth of how you've been injured or the trauma surrounding that? Um, so it's it's one, they hear you, but do they really understand? And I don't know if it's um, that they don't ask enough questions or they cannot relate it to something personal in their life to anchor that, to make it take up more room than it does from a, a conversation or at least an expression of how it can be harmful. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really important point. Like, do they understand? I think, I mean, maybe I think of myself as an optimism, but maybe I have the darkest assessment of human beings of the three Mm -hmm. of us, because I'm a, I, I, Cassia, I used to believe what you believed, which is if people were really educated, if they really understood, they would have compassion. They wouldn't believe that some people are inferior to others. But unfortunately, I've come to believe that there are people who really believe that they are superior to others and that, uh, and, and that, like, these are real beliefs they have and there's no educating them to change their belief. And, and that's, that is where you need that's where you need sort of laws and rules to say you can believe whatever you want i'm not going to waste my time i'm not going to waste my breath trying to engage with you on this belief but you cannot impose those beliefs on others and that's where i think actually germany is well ahead of the united states i think there's i think that the the the, the hate speech laws in germany actually are really important and more enlightened than the sort of free speech approach that we take in the United States. Not that I'm anti-free speech, but I think speech matters. And like when when speech does harm, then you need to pay attention. Yes. And if you have a very recent, well, quite recent historical evidence of what hate speech leads to, you better pay attention to what people yes. are saying yes. because it, it really history repeats itself over and over again. And it's you have that in Rwanda in the nineties. It's um, you know it's the risk is always there, so you have to be very careful and you have to uh, stamp on it as soon as possible. Yes, well, it I mean, it's like a wildfire. Yes, I mean we have evidence in the United States, in the Jim Crow South, uh, and we haven't. We haven't come right. to grips with it, I think, in, in the yeah. same way. You don't way. have to go that far back, but yes. Yes, that's, that <laughs> is true. That is true. Uh, that is exactly true, unfortunately. Um, so so I, think th- I think that is very helpful to this passage. Like, it's, it's, uh, it's really, like, the, the, I, in the taxonomy, I was drawing this, like, bias is different from prejudice is different from from bullying is different from discrimination is different from harassment is different from physical mm-hmm. violations and i think it is useful to sort of look at these things as discrete incidents but it's absolutely true that one thing leads to another and sometimes bias can lead to violence in the blink of an yeah. eye yeah and i think they also source somewhere from the same place it's yeah it's that ignorance and yeah i i mean yeah and also, maybe there was one more point I wanted to add. Okay. And it was please, about please. Uh, psychological safety. Because yes. you talk in this uh, part of the book about, you know, uh, learning about uh, the people that you're with in the mm-hmm. group. And um, I was just recently reading an article in Harvard Business Review. And it was about uh, inclusion and how the inclusion part in the diversity and inclusion <clears throat> a title is more understood than inclusion. Yes. So the diversity part is more understood than inclusion yes. um, because it really is based um, on, on that in creating the safety and what that means for people 
who are from uh, who are who differ a bit from the rest of the group is that they hide their identity. They don't yeah. want to be targeted, so they don't feel safe being themselves. And yes. if you are trying to reduce the bias and you want to learn about what kind of biases are these people experiencing, you really have to pay attention to create that safety that they will speak about it and that they will uh, feel comfortable to bring it up. Because it, if it goes wrong, it could make them even more of a target. So yes. I think that's an important point to highlight that you need, you cannot just expect them to dish it out like this. Yeah, no, the yeah. leader needs to be the person waving the, the, disrupting the bias. And the leader needs to put pressure on upstanders to disrupt the bias. If you put all the, all the, all the burden on the person who's harmed by the bias, then it's not going to come out. Yeah. Totally agree with you. I got to mention that season two, episode 12, when we had Crystal Quarles, mm-hmm. it, that was our first, and this is our second instance of HBR uh, being referenced uh, on the podcast. So it sounds like a really great source. So thank you for bringing that. Yes. Uh, and in fact, Amy Edmondson, who coined the term psychological safety, she and I just wrote an article together about how soliciting feedback as a leader is really important uh, to creating a culture of of radical, of of psychological safety. Nice. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> genuine, genuine solicitation. Yes, yes, where you reward the candor and not don't punish the candor. <laughs> um, so, Kasia, I would love to hear more about the work you're doing and how you are how you are helping people find solidarity and confront toxic leaders. I'm so interested in how you're doing mm-hmm. that. Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so currently we're at the very early stages still. We have experimented with different kinds of solutions, but because the problem is so complex, as uh, you talk about it also in the taxonomy <laughs> episode, mm-hmm. it's there is no one solution for people. Yeah. It's a very deep problem. It's um, although, like, uh, yeah, I think it's quite uh, amazing how it's uh, colorless, it's ageless. It's really it doesn't matter uh, even where you are in the hierarchy. It's all over the world. It's everywhere and can happen to anyone. So it's so common and uh, yet not enough is still known about it really. And I think what we are doing right now is the interviews. So we're talking to different people with different experiences from all over the world, from all kinds of backgrounds, just to see what are the similarities, what are the patterns and what kind of solutions could be uh, created. So we want to bring, like in, in terms of the solidarity, we want to bring the stories to people so that they can read and recognize uh, those patterns for themselves. Because sometimes it's just enough to really uh, read a few sentences and immediately you recognize, oh, it's not me. <laughs> it's yeah. a whole system. And I think that's the, the biggest issue. Like we also said uh, earlier on, that people are just not aware that it is a whole system. They often blame themselves. They think something, I didn't understand something. I am missing, I... And with the gaslighting that happens a lot, that's actually what that kind of leader wants you to think. They want to benefit from your lack of awareness and your disempowerment and, and you having no allies. So it's um, it really is about recognizing that there is a huge group of people. And it is really, um, there is an ILO, um, International Labor Organization report from 2022, which talks about the statistics. And it is 750 million people who are suffering uh, violence and um, violence at work and half of them don't talk about it because they see no point in it they see um, no solution 
and they blame themselves. They're afraid for their reputation. There is really a lot that goes into the silence and it benefits those leaders. So we want to break the silence and even um, we are not trying to bring the stories, people with their names uh, to it because there is still a lot of fear, but just for people to recognize those patterns. So that's what we're doing right now. And we would like to use technology to, um, to make it more easily accessible, but how exactly that is still, um, we are still working on that. It's, it's quite a, a complex issue. So yes. Yeah, the work is ongoing. <laughs> Are you familiar? There's a there's a an American startup called Callisto, yes. and it's yeah. So I I think their approach Callisto is mostly for for reporting sexual assault on college campuses. But I think mm-hmm. they're um, Jess Ladd is a person who started it who I really admire, and I think there's something to be something there. Like if a bunch of people experience bias or you think it's bias or you think it's prejudice or you think it's bullying or you think it's discrimination or harassment or violence at work, like can you can can you report it uh, anonymously and then you put the put folks in touch with each other and uh, and and then it makes it much it dispels gaslighting at the very least. Yes. And maybe if they want to take action it makes it much easier. Um, and the other interesting thing about that is, is that you would also need to figure out how to make sure that tool doesn't get used for mobbing, which is what something we talked about on our last episode for false reporting, you know, so, so, so there needs to be a real investigation that is, that, that people feel is, is reasonable and fair. Yeah. Absolutely. And yes, yeah, and I, I think agree. it's also, it goes uh, hand in hand with this uh, feedback comment that you made, that it has to be genuine, like you, you want to do something about it, not just that you put a solution in place, and then that solution is used just to make an impression that something is yeah. happening, you can yeah. report it, but then actually, nothing follows, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I think you have to put those measures and have the time dedicated to it, that um, you have to do something about it. And it's a, I, I hear that you're you're. It's really important to get these stories. It's almost um, I think when, when we talk to to Menda Hartz about feels like in her book that you almost have to gather evidence to say this is valid. These stories that you're collecting shows that it's not a one off, which I think is part of the gaslighting is because we feel yeah. like <laughs> alone, um, alone, and that we cannot share. Um, and and the same kind of experience as others, and this allows you to do that. Just out of curiosity, do you have a target amount or how many you feel that you you you'll you'll need in order for you to open this up to make this public? How many interviews uh, or is it just more of a is it a calendar thing like when well, we're going to give it this amount of time period? How do you know when you're ready to move to the next phase? Um, so right now, because I. I'm marking the patterns already. So I have mm-hmm. now over 100 interviews, which is not that many on a world scale. It's not enough to, um, you know, to bring to evidence. It's not in thousands, but I also don't have that time <laughs> yeah. to do it um, by myself. But um, we will be bringing them to public, but in a way that is completely anonymous, that is basically showing the patterns and no individual stories as such to so that you can identify a person or the company or anything like this. Um, but um, 
I don't have a, a number limit. And I'm always very grateful when people want to talk about it. Whenever um, people contact me, I'm regularly advertising that I'm doing these interviews. Um, and I see value in them. Just alone uh, hearing people's stories, giving them the space, that's already extremely valuable. Um, and it contributes to us learning about the situation and also what people do afterwards, because that was something, I mean, I had my own experiences, but um, hearing this scale of what happens after you experienced it is also, um, that's, I think maybe that's even another topic, how to, how to recover from it, but also for the leaders who you, you go into another job and there is a leader who is suddenly faced with a person who is completely traumatized. And yeah. how do they deal with this without re-traumatizing, without being completely lost in the situation? So it's really a lot comes into it. And um, the more people talk to me, the better. Um, and yeah, as I said, it's the number is in hundreds and not in thousands. So it's still, it, it could not be represent. It, it's not a representative um, sample that I could use as evidence. But I, yeah. but I really admire what you're doing because there's a lot of evidence that shows that when we tell each other stories, our brains actually get on the same wavelength. And so I think storytelling is actually a really important part of solidarity building. And I think it's what gives me, I think it's why the the Black Lives Matter movement is so important and the Me Too movement is so important because all of a sudden these stories came out into the open uh, in, in a way that they they hadn't, at least in, in my experience before. I became more aware, m- much more aware of what was happening to me, but also what I was doing wrong as a result of these two movements. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, so the optimist in me says, yes, that's the kind of education that will, that can really move the needle. Yes. And also for me, these two movements, they're really giving me hope because this is really what shows that if you share the stories, if you speak up, things can change. It will take time, but at least, you know, if it's out in the public, this element of shame is it shifted almost immediately with me too. Nobody wants to be associated with this. Nobody wants to be seen as that kind of person who behaves in that way, who is accused of this. And I think that's what we should, uh, what has to happen with leadership as well, that you are not praised for your um, financial gains, for the targets that you're hitting. And there is nothing said about how you treat people and uh, what kind of... Um, yeah, what kind of harm you cause, which is lasting, and then whoever is, uh, you know, fired from your company or leaves needs months or years to recover. Um, so I think when we talk about this more, then it will become much more shameful and um, not tolerated. And that will be a real consequence for that kind of leadership. Because yeah, the more power they have, the more the same kind of people they recruit and promote. And then we're always in the same circle. I I I I think this is, is admirable that you're going to ta- tackle this. This is huge. This is something like you mentioned is is persistent. Um, and I have to ask. There's this famous quote. Um, it says, uh, "If not me, who? If not now, <laughs> then when?" What what? I'm curious about what sparked that switch in you to say, I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to ta- start tackling this. Well, was there a, a, a inflection point? Was there something that really kind of pushed you over the edge to move forward? Yes. <laughs> so I had my own experiences, like I said. And then after a while, at first, when I was younger, 
I'm 37 now. And when I was younger, I thought, hmm, that's just how business works. You know, I always had quite a negative perspective of on business people because I thought it's only they're only focusing on money. They're only focusing on themselves. And that's not entirely true, but um, I kind of assumed that's how things are. And that's the kind of people I will work with. So I was working with that kind of people. And then um, and when I took leadership of LightUp, so the, the NGO that I'm running, um, and managed also other teams, and I found that way, well, I'm not that kind of person, and I'm still successful in what I'm doing. Um, my teams are doing well, so <laughs> what's up with this? And um, yeah, there was a tipping point when I also started opening my eyes to the fact that many of those leaders that I dealt with were just incompetent in their roles. And the only reason they were still in the role is because they could sell themselves really well, because they made an impression, because they bullied people into working so hard that they would make those uh, meet those meet those targets. And um, and then I realized that oh, something is completely upside down here. And and the fact that people suffer because I had my own suffering that I had to endure, but I saw people get sick. People get very sick because of it. People yeah. who struggled for years to recover their self-esteem, they were completely set off their uh, trajectory. And and then I realized that it's, you know, yeah, when it comes to leadership, it's like, yeah, you have to pay more attention to what kind of impact they have, uh, leaders have on people. So this is what, what happened for me. It was a gradual process. but And then I also realized that, um, the whole time I had a gut feeling about it. I, and I think in every story that I hear, people, when I ask them, so in, re in retrospect, when you first started, what were the red flags? And they immediately know what it was because they yeah. felt it. So it's something that if we, if we bring it more to light, people will spot it and be like, aha, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. Immediately, because it's just your health is not worth it, you know? I mean, it's, it's not worth to destroy your health over that kind of... Um, over job and over money, and it's um, and it's maybe a very privileged place to say that when you know we're in the Western world and uh, in countries which are uh, economically doing well, and uh, you you have the choice, especially in Germany, you have a very uh, solid social system. So if you are unemployed, uh, it's not um, you know a, a life threatening situation, but um, still it would be amazing for people to have more awareness. And even you know I think. Um, even if they cannot quit, they have then this educated understanding. It's not my fault. It's not me. Yeah. It's not only me. This person is in the wrong. So I have this relief uh, in my mind knowing that it's it's not about me not doing uh, things right. And then slowly, slowly, maybe you can work your way out of this situation, look for other opportunities um, or move up and be in the position, whether it's HR, whatever position, to lead differently. So. Um, Yes, that's. A I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Wesley, what? How do you feel about storytelling? Or does it does it leave you with the same kind of optimism that it leaves Cassia and me with? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I it um, in a way frees me from the guardrails of my own thoughts because when I'm thinking about a situation. It is uh, with the emotions and all that tied to it. I, the, the outcomes um, feel like they only go one way, but when yeah. I hear someone else's story, it allows me to free myself from that personal investment of myself. Mm 
and be able to look beyond myself and into their story. And cognitively, I can feel the edges and the directions differently so that uh, it's almost of when someone who was watching football and television is like, oh, why did they pass to that person? Or why did they they decide to go to that direction? Where um, having that separation kind of frees me from a cognitive perspective to uh, feel like at least I have some understanding and I have some insight where I wouldn't in the other way. Mm, I love this. Yeah. 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 I think that kind of education is really, it's, it's so it's like, if I, I may feel like I'm weak because this is happening to me, but when I read someone else's story, someone who I admire and it happened to them too, then I'm like, Oh, the problem is not me. The problem is not them. The problem is, you know, the the the, the culprit, the person who did the thing. Yeah, uh, but and you that- know what? That's another thing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it just reminded me that um, I also worked at a place where we were <clears throat> nine teammates and each of us individually thought, I am the worst one here. Yeah. And we thought that for months, almost a year, without realizing that the leader speaks to us individually in such a way that each of us feels like this. And then in front of the team, we're all like, oh, I'm trying to perform really well so that, you know, I'm as good as my teammates. So it doesn't even have to be a stranger. If you break yeah. the taboo, immediately just the waterfall goes and you realize, wait a second, we've been all treated yeah. really badly here. Yeah. Yeah. That's the important thing about solidarity. I know we're just about at time. There's one thing that I learned that I would like to get your perspective on, uh, Cassio. As I was <laughs> writing Just Work, one of the one of the peop- one of the many I got, I think I wrote wrote it in Google Docs, and I had about a hundred people read it, so I had a lot of feedback. And one of the people who who helped me a lot um, is a psychologist, and she said there's a big difference between shame and guilt which I, I had never been aware of. And she said, people, when they feel ashamed, they rarely change their behavior because they feel ashamed, but they often change their behavior when they feel guilt. So shame kind of invokes this fixed mindset and you just avoid it. Shame sends you into denial. Whereas guilt is like, oh, not I am a bad person, but I did something that's bad. I feel bad about it and I want to make amends. I want to make it right. Mm-hmm. So, so that is... That was really interesting to me. So, so I don't know what you what you found in terms of dealing with the the people who cause harm, <laughs> trying to change their behavior. If you found uh, uh, anything like that, um, what I actually found interesting was um, leaders reaching out to me to find out: Am I a toxic leader? Because I did mm-hmm. this and I did that, and I feel bad about it like I'm losing sleep over something that I said I'm losing sleep over something that I did and um I think so I I also distinguish between toxic leaders and leaders who are just not great at their job because Mm -hmm. that's another thing you know sometimes it's an element of training how to how to give feedback how to manage your own stress there is a lot that goes into leadership so I wouldn't call every leader um, who is difficult or who had an incident of um, behaving in a bad way that they are toxic. I, I, toxic leaders, it's, there is this element of um, consistency. There is mm-hmm. consistency to it. And they are mostly focused on their own glory and on their own success or being perceived as successful. Mm-hmm. So um, to change this, I think it would be very hard um, to guilt them into it i mean 
I think really, so with shame, ah, this is, this is a really good one <laughs> because there is, you know, something that I think they don't, because they don't want to be perceived in a bad way. I think shaming the behavior uh, would be a, a way forward. So when there is more awareness and people are shown to be, um, this is not acceptable, behaving this way is not acceptable, they will then adjust to behave in a different way, maybe. Um, but yeah. I really think it's actually boils down if we want to end toxic leadership, which is a very <laughs> yeah. difficult thing to achieve. And that's not something that I'm actually aspiring to. I think it's far, far helping, too... helping the people who are harmed by it. Yeah, yeah, I, th- it's more... I think ultimately, my sense ultimately is that there have to be consequences. Like the, the truly, uh, in, in the no asshole rule, Bob Sutton d- distinguishes between the bona fide assholes and the temporary assholes. And we're all <laughs> temporary assholes some of the time, unfortunately, I think. I've never met anyone who was 100% of the time kind. And uh, But anyway, the, the point is that when there are consequences for the behavior, then that's what starts to create change. So so you you want to make sure that that you're not giving people who bully others high ratings and that you're definitely not promoting those people. And in fact, yeah. there are a lot of companies like Atlassian is a company who has uh, the no brilliant jerk rule and they will not give high ratings or promotions to people who uh, who bully others, no matter how brilliant they are, or what results they achieve. And I think that when I was at Apple, they also did that, that, you would get rated on three things, your innovation, your results, and your teamwork. And if you got a bad rating on teamwork, no matter how good your results were, your rating was bad. And I think those are the kinds of consequences that that we need. Yeah, I think that's great. Consequences and prevention. So in the hiring stage already, then you don't have to Mm -hmm. deal with them later. You really have to pay attention and screen for emotional intelligence and, um, and just this um, whether there is how much bias is there, how much because you can do tests for this, you can still check what people deeply think about other human beings. So yeah, and what is motivating them to uh, to be yeah successful and what success means for them. So yeah. and limit yeah. their power. Power often corrupts yes. people who <laughs> who would pass those tests in the first place. And like how we started talking about climate change where we are going to have to use all of the tools in yeah. order to mitigate this crisis. I think it's the same with dealing with toxic leaders and toxic environments. So we need to make sure that we stay vigilant and we try to do everything that we can. And what we also need to do is in this podcast, we've gone long. <laughs> and so it's been a really great discussion. Thank you, Cassia. Thank you for spending the time to, to chat with us and to write to us so that we can get you on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. It was a great discussion and I learned a lot as well. So really, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. And if you, yes. And if you would like to join us, please write us at just work together um, at um, just hello. hello at hello at just work And we would like to hear your story. And if you're up for it, join us here on the podcast. So thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Be well. <laughs>